With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about housing affordability, existing home sales, Gen Z, and whether we are now in a recession. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking with Matt Dowd, Vice President of Product Management at ICE Mortgage Technology, about mortgage automation. Matt, how does automated underwriting help the housing industry in general, especially with getting more people into homes? Well, there's a few ways that I can see how accelerating this process helps more people get into a home. First off, by reducing the time required to process loan applications and providing faster loan approval times and really making more accurate lending decisions that should help more people get into homes. You know, the quicker and consistent decisioning actually increases the likelihood of approval so that when we run across life events and such, which happen during any of the process and could change the borrower's circumstances. So by implementing the process in uh, technology, you know, in creating these speeds and efficiencies, I think lenders can focus more time on attracting more borrowers, which should result in more closed loans and ultimately provide more opportunities for people to become homeowners. Great points. And listeners, you can find out more at icemortgagetechnology.com. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is wonderful to be here, Sarah. It is great to have you on again. And we want to start off with talking about a question we got from a listener, Brett Garrett. So tell us what Brett asked us. Brett, who follows me on Twitter, uh, was talking about a a chart that he saw on Twitter, which is actually very true. Uh, Housing affordability is like the worst in a very long time. So how does that solve itself? Does it mean prices come down, rates have to go lower, a a bit of both? And what does that mean for housing? And it's a very it's a very endearing topic to me because so much of my work of years 2020 to 2024 was based off of my own affordability index. So I'm going to first go with what I talked about during this period, because, you know, from 2012 to 2019, a lot of people have talked about housing on the verge of collapse because of nominal home prices rising, not adjusting to inflation or anything, but nominal home prices rising. And they didn't, incorporate the wages into that or mortgage rates in affordability was was normal you know there there wasn't anything too bad i think the the problem i saw is that everybody kept on talking about an affordability crisis and then you know home sales were slowly rising it was the weakest housing recovery ever a lot of this has to do with demographics but here for years 2020 to 2024 and this is how i look at it and this is how i would answer the question to everyone I've always said the housing market will be fine as long as home prices only grew at 23% in five years. That's 4.6% nominal home prices. If wages were trending normal, well, you know, that equilibrium would be fine. That didn't happen. And the reason I put this emphasis, because, you know, if, if people saw the inventory data, it kept on going slower and lower and lower. So if you have housing breakout in demand because you have the biggest housing demographic patch ever recorded in history, there is a risk 
that the supply of homes breaks to a level <laughs> that we've never seen before in U.S. history with the most amount of home buyers looking for shelter. That in itself is inflationary. So home prices after 2020 to 2021 broke my model because we were up 30% pretty much by the time uh, 2021 started. So 2022, the forecast was actually decelerating price growth, uh, 5.2 to 6.7% because we were we were going very hot. Total active listings were still low. And then when mortgage rates break above or when the 10-year yield breaks above 1.94%, you get 4% plus mortgage rates. The home price and the rate factor kick in. That'll bring demand down. March of 2022, the 10-year yield broke above 1.94, and that started the uh, a demand hit. However, in this conversation, we're talking about what does it mean for home sales or, or housing in general? Demand gets hit noticeably, but there's also a level in the United States of America that you know we find stabilization. And I think that's where all the discussions on affordability has to go to. What does that mean to everyone? If, if homes are so affordable, what does that mean? Mass supply coming, prices coming down, people not listing their homes because it's not affordable to move anymore. There's all these different variables, but I've always said, to me, when you have like an affordability crisis or something to that nature where demand really gets hit, you break under 4 million monthly sales. COVID, we got to 4 million. Last year or this year, we got to 4 million. The only time we authentically broke under 4 million was 2008, and that was a credit crunch. So when I think about housing, the United States of America, home prices and versus per capita, we, we are so much cheaper than anywhere else in the world when we consider it compared to Sweden, Norway, Australia, Canada, you know. So it's not as unaffordable as people think. You know, if you look at the baseline models of even the NAR, you need $107,000 to make to be able to buy homes. You think about dual household incomes in America, home buyers, not renters. That keeps that demand from breaking below 4 million. And that's what we saw. We saw mortgage rates start to fall without, you know, there's no price reduction. We home prices didn't fall last year. We see the seasonally adjusted, you know, home prices decline on a monthly basis, which is a positive. This is why I always say that if if I focus on my model nationally, if home prices, let's say that's clip 13%, you know, we're we're about 36% home price gains from the start of COVID. If I clip it by 13% and home prices don't go anywhere, I'm somewhat in my ballpark by the end of 2024 because wages grow every year. So that's how I look at housing. And what happened is that if there's an affordability crisis, then home sales should keep on going lower and lower and lower. It didn't. It stopped because rates fell. Now, the question is, how do you get up higher in home sales, right? There's where I think the massive home price growth uh, in a very short amount of time really impacts housing because there's no more exotic loan debts anymore. Right, there's all that stuff is gone. So and it, and it could also force people to look in different areas. That you know, when when you're when you when it's not affordable in a local area, a lot of times people go, well, I need to come here or here, especially if people want to buy. In this case, uh, the affordability issue is real, but it's not as dramatic as some people because 
if it is that dramatic, then home sales should go down to two, one million. So I always tell people, whenever somebody says affordability crisis, they all put the charts up, everyone does it. Ask them what that means for sales. Because I've always said that if rates came down, October 27, the case for lower mortgage rates, mortgage rates started to fall from that point, November 9th, all the way to April uh, uh, 17th. Where are we at right now with purchase apps? 15 positive weekly prints, six negative. So rates falling down stabilize demand. But what it hasn't done is pushed housing demand to grow like we've seen over the years. So I think that that's where the affordability hit does. And price growth cooling down or even going negative, positive, because you have to think about housing over the long run. But for me, if home prices fell 13%, it goes back to my affordability. It's like a lot of these people keep on saying 30, 40, 50% home price crashes. Stock traders, real estate investors, not housing people, right? Because they assume educated people will sell you their homes at 30, 40% off. It's a, it's a fascinating concept. You go back 100 years, it's really rare to have nominal home prices crash like that. It happened in 2000. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You, we see this. We see the mass supply. But um, so I, I look at it as if rates fall, demand stabilizes because the pricing hasn't come down enough. Wages grow every year, so I look. I work off of that equilibrium. How do I get back closer to my five-year price growth model? Because wages are rising. Wages are rising more than normal, and you have to always uh, think about this: dual household incomes. People who sell their homes and have a lot of equity and put down, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, for a house. You know, I, I have a recent family member buy a property, big down payment, you know, and uh, the mortgage payment is not that high uh, uh, relative to the income. So I think we have to look at it in that context, look at it at wages, prices, and everything working off each other. What we shouldn't do is think that. People who can't afford a homes will sell their homes, sell it, and do what? Right? You're not going homeless. You traditionally buy another house. So uh, this is why I'm not a mortgage rate lockdown person. Affordability is an issue for some people, and it's harder and harder to sell that property, buy another home, because everyone has to work off 30-year fixes. Now, in the early part of the century, it didn't matter as much, right? Uh, you had a lot of speculation on credit. Anybody could get a loan. So in the first time, like as a country, we're dealing with 13 years of housing data and affordability as being a, a an issue. And we saw this last year. I mean, we we saw, you know, we saw this existing home sales report that came out yesterday. We, you know, when you look at that chart, that was the biggest collapse in home sales ever. Okay. So I do want to get into existing home sales, but first I want to say thank you to Brett for sending in a question and tell our listeners, you can always get Logan at hwmedia.com or Sarah at hwmedia.com. Put us both on there. Uh, we love to answer your questions. Um, so yes. And to, and, to, and to Brett, it's really going to have to be a function of everything, right? Every year wages rise when rates fall, those variables work together. Price growth, if it, if it cools down, if it declines, these things work together. But again, my, my, if 13, if home prices fell 13% and stopped, I'm basically at the higher end range of my affordability index. And we could see what happened. Rates fell and we had one of the biggest month-to-month -month sales prints ever. So there's demand there. So affordability really depends on on who we're talking to. And it's such a sub 
you know, there's different segments of home buyers, move up buyers, move down buyers, cash buyers, investors, first time home buyers. Now that's, again, that's the one that, you know, you, those are, those, those, those are the ones that get hit the hardest when rates go up because, uh, uh, they finance their homes. Younger Americans finance their homes a lot more than older Americans. Older Americans don't finance their homes as much. So, uh, the, that portion gets hit and, 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 and to talk about, you know, um, we, we new listings data trending at all time lows. We have to remember that if the first time home buyer, this is why I've always talked about years 2020 to 2024 to be different. They're not selling their homes to buy. So whatever inventory comes onto the market by traditional home sellers, if they come in too, guess what? They're buying, right? They're buying a home and their home. And what, what occurs is that the people that also sell their homes to buy, boy, you put those together. That's why I always say, when you think of housing demand, move up, move down, cash, investor, first-time home buyer, put them together. The biggest housing demographic patch ever recorded in history. There it was. So when things were affordable, they all worked in together. And as always, housing broke out before COVID hit us, but it was much more affordable back then than what it is now. So it's a grind of affordability and getting people to sell their home, buy their home. So it's 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 probably going to frustrate maybe the the biggest bearish people or the biggest bullish people in America, but it, it, it's the reality of what we have to deal with in a country that's dealing with normal credit channels. And that is key. So you wrote about the existing home sales uh, for us last week, and uh, we're recording this on Friday, so this week. But by the time people listen to it, and you know, the big takeaway there, I think, was the inventory. I mean, inventory—it just plagues us. Yeah, it's 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 such a fascinating concept. We're sitting here today in America. And housing's still in a recession, right? My recessionary models for housing to get out is not is not fixed, but monthly supply is at two point six months, right? I think it averaged like eight point nine months from two thousand six to two thousand eleven. So if you were in a, this is what I do is it's called the coma theory. If you went into a coma in twenty nineteen and you woke up today, and the first chart somebody gave to you was the total active listings and the monthly supply, your first reaction is like. Who the hell are you? Where's my family? Outside of that, you're like, oh my God, housing must be booming because supply is so low. That's the wrong way to look at it, right? Inventory has been falling for years. People were living in their homes longer, but demand, you know, uh, has noticeably fallen. We saw that initial bounce. You know, uh, I've always talked about everyone needs to put that first bounce. That's why when I went on CNBC, before the uh, two months ago, existing home sales. But hey, listen, that's going to be a big bounce. Put it in context to the waterfall dive. And then we fell month to month. So I, what I wrote in that article is, here's a sales range for everybody to work with. 4 million on the bottom, 4.6 million on the top. Now, because high velocity data is so crazy that, you know, I, I used to always focus on these sales ranges to get everyone uh, an idea of where real demand is, if, if it's better or worse. Here, you had to wait to get that bounce first. And this is why I'm, I'm talking about this now and not so much in the 2023 forecast. We have to see how big that bounce is, and then we work off it. So if we're trending below 4 million going out in the year, let's say rates rise up, people list new listings, even collapse more, then that means demand is really getting weaker. If we go above 4.6 million, demand's picking up. And I would say that if you want to like think about pre-COVID housing demand where it would be normal, 4.72 million to 5.31 million, 12 months. If we get back there, we're kind of back to pre-COVID. Uh, so, so for right now, work off those ranges. 
And if we're above 4.6 million, hey, housing demand's getting back up there to where I traditionally would think it would be normal. Years 2020 to 2024, I probably was the least bullish on total sales. But if you get over 6.2 million total home sales, that is a beat for me. So I'm not one of these big housing credit sales boom person. I just I just don't fundamentally believe in that. But now that we've had this much uh, data on the existing home sales, we have a workable bottom and top to to see. And we'll take purchase application data and, and look forward. And we, we're almost done with the seasonality of, of housing demand forward-looking demand. So uh, I think the question going out for the rest of the year is, what if rates fall? What if what if, what if, if for some reason the economy gets weaker um, and the 10-year yield breaks and mortgage rates go above, below 6% and you know there's still over 155 million people working? In, theoretically, that is a huge positive. And that initial decline in rates overrides whatever jobs are being lost at that current moment. Because why? We have over 155 million people working. So but if you see like one job report, like 200,000 people lose their jobs, like, oh, housing is going to crash. Think about the rationality of that person's mindset. We have over 155 million, but that 240,000 people that lost their jobs, that overrides this Godzilla labor force that's still working. That was the COVID mistake. And back then we had 20 to 30 million people unemployed. and housing demand just shot up right back there. So always think about the net people employed and how lower rates impact them. Positive, right? Not a negative, positive. So, you know, some other things from that existing home sales report that I thought were really interesting. So we had, I think it was 28% of, um, so so the largest percentage of people buying homes um, was first-time home buyers. Yeah. So first-time buyers were responsible for 28% of sales in March. Um, I guess that makes sense if you think about the fact that, you know, who's getting into the market right now, because uh, we've talked about mortgage rates. But uh, what what are your thoughts on that, Logan? You know, if you look at the survey of first-time home buyers, it's pretty much kind of been in a flat range for 12 years uh, uh, for the NAR. So we're kind of 27 to 33% always. Again, millennials are the biggest home buyers in America. Uh, Gen Z where they're starting getting into the home buyer age. They're actually, um, uh, Redfin came out with a, a article on this. Gen Z is actually buying homes earlier than their parents, just for now. And you, people forget, Gen Z is massive. Uh, uh, they're, they're not a small group. I mean, they, they dwarf the Gen Xers. So uh, we're not talking about just the millennials. We're talking millennials and Gen Z. You put them together, they're bigger than the total population of Japan. So interesting uh, uh, a tidbit of data that that, that for right now, Gen Z is 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 buying homes uh, earlier than their parents. So, not a massive group yet, but something to think about going out in the future. Um, but right now, still to me, is when mortgage demand picks up like it did, then naturally you get more who finances their homes, younger people. Yep. So, so uh, Gen Z, how so used to uh, share a population chart. A lot in 2020, 2021. It was it was one of, it was a demographic chart, and it was it was really interesting because it had this bulges, and you had this really big bulge that was the millennials. But then you had a pretty good secondary bulge right underneath it that was Gen Z. What? How do they compare? Like uh, Gen Z by itself is one of the biggest uh, demographic groups in the history of the world. Right for uh, for a modern mature economy, of course, China and India have uh, so much bigger population. But when, when I think when I think of Gen Z combined, they're smaller than the millennials, but uh, they are 
they're massive. And it's interesting. People sub subgroup them between uh, Gen A and Gen Z. Some people would put Gen Z and Gen A together, which makes them uh, a, a bigger than the uh, uh, Gen Xers uh, always. So millennials are the biggest and the ages, you know, 28 to 35 is the, is the biggest in America right now. But Gen Z is not, 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 not a small, small group either. So uh, I think that's, you, you, you have to remember it's stable replacement buyer demand. That's how you should look at housing. You shouldn't look at housing as a lot, a lot of people make the mistake that population growth is slowing. Housing demand is, is crashing. Population growth is slowing for like many years. That's, that's nothing new. It's the net people that matter, right? So we always talk about move up, move down, cash investors, first time home buyers together. Housing demographics have never been better. A lot of like bearish things that I've seen on, uh, in interviews or other media outlets is that people see the, they say the population growth is bad. Well, what about the people here now today? If only babies were like, you know, the home buyers, then I guess that would matter, but it's not the case. And birth rates are picking up now. So again, rent, date, mate, marriage, three and a half years after marriage, kids, there's your housing story. And we're seeing a pickup in birth rates. We saw a pickup in pregnancy tests. That's one of the charts that I've done during COVID was showing the pickup in pregnancy tests in 2020, uh, 2021. So we were picking up a little birth. And guess what? Some people that could afford it need a bigger home. They buy a house. Don't make it any more complicated than that. It's funny because I, I feel like there was so much emphasis when millennials were coming in, like, you know, when are they going to start buying homes? And people were worried about, oh, this is such a different generation. They're never going to buy homes and they don't care about homes like their parents did all this stuff. And I just don't hear all that histor- hysteria about Gen Z. Oh, uh, well, they're, they're really just too young. I think that's, I think that's the, they're, they're too young right now to, to be part of the discussion, but they're, some of them are buying. Uh, and of course, you know, the joke is, well, how does somebody that's three year out of college buys a house, you know? So, you know, think of them as just replacement buyer demand. Um, I, I'm not a housing sales boom person. I just don't think we have that kind of turnover or credit. But millions and millions of people buy homes each year, right? So you have to figure out at what what point does the affordability uh, impact that to come down? We saw that last year, right? And then uh, how wh- what do people think about listing their homes and buying? You know, again, we don't sell to be homeless, right? So there's all these different variables that I think that complexity of housing economics frustrates people. So they don't want to talk about it. They'd rather say crash, doom, burn, housing 2008. And that is more appealing. Um, But again, millennials and Gen Z combined are bigger than the population of Japan. So what we have in America, which again, this is our muscle, right? This is our American muscle is right here. We have younger replacement workers and consumers. Japan doesn't have it. China doesn't have it. Europe doesn't have it. So it's our century, right? India has a lot of young people. Africa has a lot of young people. So their development is is going to be exploding. But for a mature economy of our, we have them. They don't. That's why I like to do those population growth charts for prime age. Everyone else is down except us. Uh, that's our benefit. That's why I say replacement. Replacement workers, replacement buyers, positive for the U.S. economy. And immigration's picked up. You know, some of the data that we've seen recently, uh, 4 million, you know, uh, uh, immigrations for the COVID delay and pause, they're back up again. Good, positive. 
We this is this is a this is a plus for the U.S. because the baby boomers, which Sarah Wheeler is not a baby boomer, so she's gonna thank be, you for clarifying that. Yeah, uh, where those people are going to retire <laughs> and then pass off, and then you know we need there's parts of the country that need younger workers, and I think that's 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 a that's a good thing. That's a good thing for the United States. So in the last couple minutes we have, I would like to talk to you about recession because we have had so many different Fed members come, you know, again, another week of Fed members talking and everyone else trying to parse out what is going on. So the the latest is about specifically recession. So fill us well, in. I just I just want to let everyone know Mester, one of our favorite Fed members, she she made a statement saying, We are closer to the end of Fed tightening than the starting. Of the Fed rate hikes, I'm like, really? Do you, I mean, is is that is that a statement you need to make to the media? We're, we're we're almost at the end. We're not at the start. See, when people when people say that, they say crazy things. They do say crazy things. Um, so this is this is a good topic because the conference board, uh, the main economist for the uh, conference board that creates the leading economic index, the people that created the. IMF, the World Bank, they give their information to Wall Street, the Fed, uh, the White House. Their economists came on CNBC and said, uh, we're in a recession. Their model shows we're in a recession. Now, for, for those who followed us at Housing Wire, if they sound familiar, they did. They asked me last July 27th to, pre- to present to them my six recession red flag model. Again, my progression recession model is designed to be early and then just talk about economics every single month. I'm not here as some Wall Street advisor who's saying, oh my God, we are, you better watch out. You better get your money out of stocks. Come, come give it to us. We're net long anyway, but who cares? You know, so I think the promotions of recessions are are used for financial incentives to get people to listen to them. But for me, it's different. I just want to talk about how economic cycles are different at stages. So August 5th, my six recession red flags are up. The leading economic index is like down like nine, 10 months in a row. So, so on on their how they look at it per their surveys, they believe we've entered the recession stage. Me, on the other hand, uh, when I raise my six recession red flags up, we want to talk about how, where do we get to the level to where jobless claims rise, right? And jobless claims rising is the final nail in the coffin for the for every economic expansion. Credit contraction, something something to that nature. Does demand break down? Because if demand doesn't break down, if it's stable, people don't fire people if their demand is stable. So that's what we're focusing on right now. And they're looking at, you know, for the next six months, we're at the start of this process. And this is why we focus on jobless claims every single week on the tracker. And jobless claims and continuing claims have been rising after the seasonal adjustments they've been made. It hasn't broken the labor market yet, but those are the things that we watch and credit. You know, a lot of people think the banking crisis, well, we don't hear any more banking crisis anymore, right? We, it's not in the headlines. But if credit gets tighter, right, the the ability to expand a business, to borrow, you know, the cost of debt is higher. You know, those things typically happen toward the end of an expansion and then companies have to lay off people. But we're different dynamics now, right? Household balance sheets are better now. Uh, labor demographics are different now. People are, again, a little bit more mindful than before of letting people go. Uh, we see these tech layoffs, of course, have been happening for, for many months now, and unemployment rates are still very low for college-educated Americans, so they could you know, live off their severance or find a job. There's all these different variables. We work on it every single week. So jobless claims rose again, nothing dramatic, but it's rising slowly. 
And the reason that that's very important is because we've had periods of times where jobless claims have two or three weeks of rising and then it falls down. There's a lot of seasonality in data. This is not the case right now. It's slowly moving up. So we keep an eye on that. And then when jobless claims break, especially over 323,000, I believe that's when the Fed will change the narrative because they're really hiding behind the labor market for some of their aggressive talks. And then it becomes really interesting, Sarah. Like for me, it's all about when jobless claims break after, oh, we're going to take this conversation to another level. Uh, uh, And uh, you want to think about talking about economics was crazy in the last three years. Wait till jobless claims break and then the Fed twiddles her thumb and go, oh, well, well, you know, we don't want the 1970s inflate. Okay. It's, it's going to be an all out war at that point. So good times coming in that, because I think we could highlight some of the really internal uh, data works on how cycles are compared to the 1970s to what we see here. Okay. We have two minutes left. I want you to uh, tell me about mortgage rates. You mentioned they could even go lower. Like where are we in the cycle of, of where mortgage rates are going to go? Well, Sarah, as we were slow dancing when the 10-year yield was rising, mortgage rates rose up with it and 10-year yields fell a little bit. Mortgage rates fell. You're you know, kind of in that six and a half, 6.75 area. Um, the Gandalf line was broken for like a day and then things shot up and we are pretty much, we look exactly where we should be with mortgage rates. Um, uh, the 10-year yield is kind of in that middle end range and um, the, more, the the spreads aren't very great right now. So uh, rates went higher. We, I think we got as low as 6.16%. We got, got back up to 6.75%. But as, as I'm talking about this, as the year goes on, the 52-week range of rates is diminishing down, right? So we're not having the 3% to 7.37% 52-week range anymore. It's, you know, it's like 5% to 7. So we're going to, we're going to cross at some point and then hopefully, you know, what I would what, what I'm gonna talk about a lot, especially to if if the Fed is listening, fixing the the spreads would be much more beneficial because if you fix the spreads and you go off the 10-year yield, then the housing market doesn't need that much help. And the Fed is very bent on keeping rates longer, short-term rates higher for longer. If the 10-year yield had fallen down and the spreads were normal. Some of the heavy lifting, and this is my belief. This is this is this is just my thinking on this. The Federal Reserve is 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 hoping that when bond yields go down, that housing stabilizes and then you know get some recovery. We saw we we saw that happen. But if rates really come down, the spreads get better. It does a lot of their heavy lifting for them early. So if they want to if they want to keep short term rates higher, find a way to get the spreads better. Right. If you could, if you want what you want, if you're telling everybody, right, we want to keep rates, short-term rates higher for longer, then if you could fix that market, you you have a little bit because if you're in a recession, job loss recession, and rates are, you know, you got all these problems you, you, you're you're dealing with that you don't want to. So find a way to slow that problem, get get spreads better, and then you know you could get your higher for longer on the short end. Well, thank you for running through that. And thanks for all the insights today. I will say that um, Housing Wire Mortgage Rate Center 
is greatly improved. We've got like real time. I know people go to that. They have their go-tos to go to for mortgage rates, but that is a great place to go. And if you haven't visited in the last uh, month or so, it has changed greatly uh, all for the better and uh, very timely now, I would say. And thank you for everyone for sending their favorite slow dances and for all the people that knew what song I was singing in the last podcast. Good for you. Right? We have the best listeners. Uh, You guys, we really appreciate you. And Logan, I appreciate you. Thanks for all the insight. And we'll talk again soon. We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.